This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everyone. My first attempt here for Teacher Talk Radio. Really looking forward to talking to you all tonight and going through a few of our interesting topics. There's some stuff in the chat, so please do text in and let's see how we get on. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, well there we go, that's the first little bit got through. Hopefully everybody managed to hear that and uh, hopefully everybody can hear me. So, let me introduce myself. My name is Henry, I'm your host for the next 90 minutes. Uh, and we're giving this a go. I hope that you find it entertaining. I hope that you find it interesting. And I hope that also you can contribute and you can give me some of your insights as well. So you'll see that we've got a few topics for this evening. First of all, we're going to be spending some time looking at the latest data around ITT recruitment. What state are we in after COVID? What is the sector looking like and what are those implications? Something else to consider for a bit later on, I'm going to be asking you, should it be called initial teacher training? Should it be called initial teacher education? Do we need to be calling it something completely different? We're also going to be taking a little moment or two to look at some uh, key areas of research, areas of interest, some great books around teaching, learning and teacher development over the course of the next few shows. Uh, my choice for this evening is Graham Nuttall's absolutely fantastic seminal work, The Hidden Lives of Learners. And I hope that you can contribute some of your opinions about that wonderful, wonderful text. Another thing that I'm going to ask you to text in on and hopefully give me your opinion about is teacher quality. How do we ensure that we are bringing the very best into the sector? Okay, so if anyone's got anything that they do want to contribute at any point, please do fire those texts in. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Also as well, if you feel like you want to call in and contribute or have somebody else talking because you're already tired of me, then please do. The topics are there. So I think the first thing to do is to first of all apologize for the obvious background noise when broadcasting from one's own home uh, with a day to go before the Easter holidays. There's naturally some uh, some quite tired children, so I do apologise if you're hearing that, um, but uh, that's life. So what we're going to look at to start with is who I am and why I am here. Now, I'm very lucky in that uh, I'm able to broadcast to you this evening and talk to you a little bit just about myself and what I do. I've been in teaching now for the best part of 15 years, and those of you that know me and those of you that would you know, attest to the fact that I've got a very good face for radio would realise that the ever balding pate and the greying hair is indicative of the, uh, <laughs> the time I've spent in the sector. I work in the state sector and have done all my life, um, all my teaching life, having taken a uh, PGCE route back in the mid 2000s. I'm uh, currently a director of a school-centred initial teacher training programme in the east of England. 
and have had years experience in both middle and senior leadership. For me, the real interest is around teacher development and that ongoing constant professional development, that arc of improvement that we're always striving to keep up with. Um, yes, we may have been teaching 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to be constantly evaluating and trying to adapt our practice. Okay, so that's really where I start from. Uh, I think in particular, the current state of the nation around initial teacher training means that we've got an awful lot to look at in terms of ensuring that we've got the very best people coming through into the sector and the sector is given the very, very highest credence that it deserves. Often people look down on initial teacher training, initial teacher education, um, seen as, you know, just the, uh, the, the first rung on what is ultimately a very long ladder and nobody really seems to give the area the respect I think that it deserves. I'm sure over the uh, <clears throat> the course of this evening and the course of other shows, as we dig down into the various acronyms, initialisms and concepts with relation to initial teacher training, we're going to encounter the core content framework. We're going to encounter the fabled and somewhat controversial early career framework as well. But the first thing that I want to do this evening, and one of the questions that I posed there in the chat, is to just try and get people thinking a little bit about the current state of initial teacher training, and in particular, the data, the applications. Now, many, many, well, I say many, many years ago, <laughs> a couple of three years ago, before we had this thing called a pandemic, there was a, uh, a relatively level playing field around initial teacher training applications. Uh, there's a variety of routes, as we know, and people, if they had their degree, they had their interest, they moved on in and they thought, teaching, that's for me. Now, during the pandemic, very naturally, there was a bit of an uptick and it was actually something of a spike in applications for initial teacher training. All of a sudden, people, I think, felt that they were uh, in danger, perhaps, of not reaching the point in their career that they had at the time. You know, there was threats around the economy, all of these things. And so that led to a surge in interest, a surge in people wanting to get into what is ultimately the best profession. It might be challenging, but it brings us such reward. And recently, Jack Worth and the team at NFER um, have published their most recent report around the teacher labour market in England. And although that doesn't sound thrilling reading on, on first hearing that, I think we've got to be, uh, got to be very, very aware of some of the key findings and recommendations around this and what that really means for teaching, okay? So all we're gonna do is we're just gonna explore, I think, a few of the key points that are raised within the report itself. First and foremost, indicative that the teacher supply challenges are returning in England, okay? Now, if you're a teacher or you're thinking of getting into teaching or you work with early career teachers, what are your opinions on that? Have you noticed that there are some supply challenges? If you're in senior leadership, have you noticed that actually filling those areas in your curriculum that you often used to have to beat people away with a stick for is now actually going out and having to try and drag them in with some sort of carrot? According to the report, teachers' real terms pay is lower than 10 years ago. Also, I think going to be one of those very, very controversial points of discussion. But that means surely that teachers' real pay has lost competitiveness relative to the wider economy. 
and there's real implications around the latest white paper and this proposal to start salaries at £30,000 for teachers by 2023. Astonishing. Good evening to those of you that are joining us in the studio. It's great to think that I'm not broadcasting to just myself, my water bottle and the slightly incontinent cat that lives downstairs. We're also looking at the fact that teachers continue to work longer hours. Now, again, a point of debate, a point of contention. How often do we as teachers enjoy martyring ourselves in hours of work conversations? Do we work smart? Do we work hard? Do we overwork or underwork? Do we mistake collaboration as a, uh, a tool for reducing our workload when in fact all we do is create more work for everybody by not talking and agreeing about what's going on? Again, things to discuss. And we're also going to consider in the report the fact that schools' capacity to mentor trainees and new teachers is likely to remain under strain. And I think that in particular is going to be a really key thread that we need to unpick. It's all very well bringing the very best teachers into our sector, but what if we've got nowhere for them to go? What if there's no placement for them? In fact, only this month, the DfE have updated the ITT criteria to allow for or to mitigate for the fact that schools can't place trainees. Now that surely is a very sad state of affairs. So before we uh, start to dig a little deeper into some of these key threads, it'd just be interesting to see if anyone's actually got any opinions with regards to this. As I just look down through, okay, we've got no one that wants to contribute as yet, but that doesn't matter. Okay, because I'm going to give you what I think. We'll start with what the report starts with, and that's teacher supply challenges. And apparently, we've got this resurgent labour market in the UK now since the summer of last year. And that means that that COVID surge in those post-grad applications has subsided. And there's a genuine risk being presented that many teachers, uh, many subjects in the secondary sector are not going to meet those recruitment targets. And that's really not a good thing when we come to look at the future of the sector. We look at those subjects that have those real specialist aspects to them, all that wonderful pedagogic content knowledge that isn't being developed in school settings because people just aren't wanting to come into the sector. Why not? Okay, well, I'm not sure. I can give my opinions. Um, some of them may be valid, some of them may be not. But actually, I think the real issue here is that if we continue towards or continue on this path of lower recruitment than expected, all that forward planning that people were doing prior to the pandemic, all of those schools that have got ambitions of growth or development are going to struggle to put the right people in the right jobs. And with the advent of the early career framework, of course, that means that actually a two year induction period costs your school that little bit more. OK, now here, I think, lies the issue. If we're going to be bringing in teachers to fill those gaps, we've got to ensure those teachers are good enough. But if the numbers are low, the natural market response is to just take in perhaps lesser quality. And I think that's going to be a real issue. Retention rates appear to be returning towards pre-pandemic levels. And I think actually that, as the report itself cites, these challenges around teacher supply are re-emerging after two years of having eased. That, to me, is a real issue. I see trainees coming through my training programme and I see real potential. I see skill. I see passion. I see dedication. But what I didn't get to see over the past two years was classroom practice. 
and those poor teachers, those poor cohorts of the last two years who learned to hone their craft largely hidden behind a screen, those that were bound by the black and yellow tape of two metre distance, and now learning in the face of it all how to manage a classroom, how to move around a learning environment, and how to take ownership of that space. We've got to look after those guys. Next finding, next recommendation we've got here is that issue about real-term pay. And now this surely has got to be another factor that impacts on our sector. If nobody sees that teaching is actually worth getting into, then why on earth would people want to get into it? The rather scary statistics show that average teacher pay in 2020-21 remained nearly 10% below its 2010-2011 level in real terms. That's absolutely shocking. The fact that this then is you know, appearing in the fag end of a pandemic, but at the start of some sort of massive economic downturn, where we have inflation at an all-time high, at an all-time high, to quote a Bond song, and then also the price of petrol at the pump and all of these things. Teachers have to drive to work, okay? And if it costs you 20, 30, 40p more a litre to fill up your car, well, then all of a sudden, getting to and from your job is not an easy thing. We've also got this perennial issue of longer hours. And if anyone out there wants to just contribute something around how many hours they think they're actually working in a week, then it would be interesting to compare that data. I try and be as sensible and as pragmatic as I can with my workload. I get in early and I come home at a reasonable hour and I do my best to do all of my work within the confines of the school building. But for some people, that's just not practical. What can we do to reduce perceived issues around workload and I say perceived there okay the key thing for me being that workload is a thing everybody has it it's not a pejorative in itself the term workload simply refers to what you have to do for your job the key thing is how you manage what you do to make sure that you're efficient and that you're not only honing your craft but you're maintaining that efficiency okay to quote Brian Eno craft is what um, keeps you going when inspiration is lacking okay so sadly the report will tell us that workload is the reason most cited by ex-teachers for why they left teaching we've got to ensure teachers workloads are manageable but a lot of that is also down to the own the teacher's expectation of what it is they're going to have to do the final thread that we're looking at here is that capacity to mentor trainees and new teachers and that's likely to remain under strain uh, a recent survey by the NFER of senior leaders in autumn 2021 found that the number of IT placement schools offered increased slightly, but there's more trainees in the system. So if we've had an uptick in applications and an uptick in recruitment, that means that we need an uptick in placements. Now, that's all very well, but the minute you say, OK, I'm going to take another ITT this year, that means you've got to find yourself another mentor. Is that mentor the right person for the job? How do you know? There again is the issue. We can only ensure that we bring the greatest teachers through if they're supported appropriately and enabled to enact um, their practice in those supportive developmental settings. Those of us who are interested in the develop uh, professional development within education will be fully aware that the best teachers are found not in those schools with the best results. They're not found in those schools with the most money and the best resources, but they're found in those schools with the best working professional environments. People who value 
the opportunity to improve their craft. People who value the opportunity to become better on a regular basis, to challenge themselves and to engage in positive dialogue. Now, those of you that know me, those of you that are unfortunate enough to have had me cross your path, will be very aware that I do an awful lot of quoting, I do an awful lot of referencing, and I draw on the same people time and again. But one person I'm always going back to, and regardless of what you think about his political leanings, is Paolo Freire. And Freire talked about dialogue, and he talked about the fact that it enables critical thinking. The fact that it actually must take place in a place of hope, and it must have mutual humility. I'm not sure if we're getting that in our sector at the moment. So let's work our way through and let's just see if we can unpick some of these threads and we can start to think about what that means for teaching as a whole. First of all, let's go back to this surge in postgrad applications. End of cycle recruitment numbers are likely to be lower than they were last year, lower than they were the year before. And we're coming back to those pre-COVID levels. What an awful phrase, pre-COVID. And that means that we're uh, expecting to be 25% down on last year. That's a big hole. That's a gaping hole in anyone's curriculum-led financial plan. Interestingly, he says, interestingly, I was looking at the data. Data, interesting data, is that an oxymoron? And every month, then we have data published by um, the government around uh, those who apply for teacher training. And just the most recent that came out today is actually showing that things like uh, programs such as Teach First have had a massive hit, um, which I think is concerning, but also that there has been a rise in the interest of postgraduate teacher apprenticeship. So clearly people are exploring a range of routes. Um, the really interesting one for me is the gender breakdown. And if we take a look at the, uh, the split, there are almost three times as many females to males applying to and being recruited to the profession ready to start September this year. Now, as a male English teacher, I'm not a rare breed. I'm certainly not a physicist or a mathematician, which uh, certainly in the area that I work in are as rare as unicorns carrying hen's teeth. But I think that's, again, something that we need to be very, very aware of. What's that gender balance? Where are those role models? If we know, as we do from significant research and significant data and significant focus in and around various educational channels, that one of our key focus areas around this disadvantage gap and closing the gap is those white middle class boys, okay, those white working class boys, sorry, where are their role models? If we're having far fewer male teachers enter the profession, who are these guys going to look up to? I think that is a real concern. So, taking into account the fact that these uh, cohorts of applicants in 2022 won't start teaching in schools till September 23, there is time to do something about this. But what? Again, I speak from the experience of ECTs currently in the programme. ECTs currently in that first year of this new induction. Now, don't get me started on the early career framework. Great intentions. And maybe that could be a topic for another show. We're not there tonight. But let's think a little bit about what that means so far. Anyone that trained in the cohort of uh, 2021 or 21-22, they're now practicing in schools. However, much of their practice, much of their training 
was undertaken in conditions that were not that that don't resemble what they're currently working okay so we've got this feeling that these teachers these these wonderful wonderful teachers these inspirational people these passionate educators learnt their trade online they learnt their craft from books and then they did their very, very best to develop that craft with assistance from their mentor to try and manifest that in those multitudinous areas of enactment with all of those different people telling them what to do and suggesting to them how to do it. And we have this case of a Tower of Babel, all of these different voices throwing themselves at the trainee, all with the best intentions, but all ultimately with that hic disonant ubique. Here there is shouting and noise everywhere because there's too many voices shouting different things and all we've got is clamour and discord. And those poor teachers, they're fantastic, but they're also in need of our help because they've been overproved with theory. They got great quality initial teacher education. They went into the early career framework and they're getting that again, but it's the same stuff. And I'm going to get off that soapbox before I step too high up. But what's happening is they're overproved in theory and they're underbaked in the classroom. And those of us that enjoy baking and those of us that like a loaf or two know full well that if you overprove and you underbake, you don't, you know, you end up with a, a loose, shapeless, flavorless bread. And we don't want RECTs to be loose and shapeless and flavorless. We want them to be rich and flavorsome. And we want them to offer us wonderful, wonderful future for this sector. So let's really think about how best we look after those guys. Okay. There is time to take some action, but that action has got to be with everybody's heads above the parapet. And school leaders have got to raise their heads from the sand. Anyway, he promised he wouldn't get on a soapbox and he just did. Let's also think about the impact that bursaries might be having here. I work in the secondary sector, okay? In the secondary sector, you can apply to teach uh, certain subjects, maths, physics, computing, and you can be given quite a, a decent bursary, okay? Tax-free lump sums paid into your account every month. If you want to go into primary, there's not been any money in that sector for years. Why is that? These are the formative years of children's education. Why aren't we funding opportunities for people to get into this profession? Why aren't we saying this is the gateway to an understanding and to greater, richer student experience? Here's some money to help you get there. I don't understand why that isn't happening. And I think in response to that application surge, the DfE reduced or removed those bursaries in the 2021 cycle. In real terms, there's still a significant cumulative effect of over £100,000 of funding per set of subjects lacking in the current funding model than there was two years ago. That's not good financial management as far as I'm concerned. And when we take into account the bursaries, we can actually argue that one of the key things that's gone wrong, I think, in bringing the right people into the sector is that those people with the requisite knowledge base can get more money elsewhere. And that, again, is a sad thing, which is why I suppose physicists and mathematicians are as rare beasts as they are. Worth and his colleagues in the NFER report argue the economic recovery is the main reason why application numbers have fallen. <laughs> However, I think anyone who very quickly took a meter reading earlier today in a, uh, a vain hope of trying to convince their new electricity company to charge them less over the next few months realises that we've not had much of an economic recovery. I, I'm being very negative, aren't I? 
I don't mean to be negative. I, I, am, I am filled with hope. I'm always filled with hope and I always look on the positive side of things. But we also have to be very pragmatic. There are stark figures here that we do need to do something about PDQ. So that takes into account the fact that recruitment for courses last year still remained below target required to meet the school system's supply needs in those shortage subjects. So it's all very well bringing these guys in, but we've got to be bringing the right people into the right areas. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a Matthew effect. We're going to end up with a widening gap. And we don't want that. And it's awful, isn't it, when we consider Matthew effects, not only in the students whose uh, COVID home lives and socioeconomic demographics have, have meant that their you know, attainment distance between them and their more advantaged peers is widened, but also the fact that's going to happen with teachers. Teachers who are with or without subject knowledge, teachers who are supported or not supported, and we create the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. Certain subject areas are going to be so rich and resplendent in talent that people are going to be fighting each other for that one post. Other areas are going to be so impoverished and drought stricken that actually we're going to struggle to maintain quality in that sector going forward. Not a nice position to be in. Worth and his colleagues imply that a return to a more challenging overall teacher recruitment environment is likely to impact most significantly on perennial shortage subjects such as physics, maths, MFL and computing. Now, in my current recruitment cycle, we've been open since the middle of October. We're a good provider. People like what we do. But can I attract a physicist? Can I attract a, a raft? Or, what's the, the collective noun for a group of mathematicians? Uh, a formula? of mathematicians? Can I pull in a, an equation of physicists? Can I gather a Trump doy of MFL? No, I can't. I can feel this in real terms. So again, what can we do to bring those people into the sector? Send in your thoughts. Let me know what you think. Okay, let's take this on a little further. We've got the fact that meeting these recruitment targets by the end of the year this year is going to be unlikely. Teaching is done in cycles. School leaders and strategic planners don't just think from one week to the next. They think months. They think academic years and cycles ahead. If we can see from the NFER data, the UCAS data, the DFE apply data, the census data, the data, 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 then what we've got, particularly in subjects like physics, design technology, business, computing, science in general, music, MFL, maths, RE, art, biology, English and geography are all set to fall below their target. As an English teacher by trade, <clears throat> as an artist by desire, as a frustrated musician who's not got a note in his body, and as somebody who just relishes the challenge of teaching, that's really sad. Okay, we're going to bring in over the amount of drama teachers that we need. Nothing wrong with that. I love a bit of drama. But the trouble is, if you've got a lot of drama teachers and not a lot of drama appointments to make, then you're going to end up with a lot of frustrated actors and actresses trying to do other things. You're going to end up with an awful lot of people wearing black leggings, doing interesting movements on street corners. We've got primary. That's going to overfill. Again, there's only so many places for these people to go and work in. And what is there anything more sad than somebody with QTS without a job? We've got classes. Uh, we're going to overemploy in classics. Great. OK, to an extent. But in all honesty, how vital 
our classics teachers in a current secondary curriculum. I think they're valuable, they're not vital, there's a difference. Historians, great, we're going to get plenty of those, and forever and always, there are always far more PE teachers than we need. And that's a real shame, because physical education, outdoor education, opportunities to be active are vital for student and staff well-being. But if there's nowhere for these guys to go, then their value diminishes. Okay, let's take this on further. Please, as I say, text in with your views if you have any. Worth also points out that these teacher leaving rates are returning to these pre-pandemic levels. Okay, people who are leaving the system, people who aren't staying. Okay, greater retention, according to Worth, aids teacher supply since every additional teacher retained is one less to recruit. Retention then surely stands before recruitment in every great school leader's eyes, because if you retain, you can, your consistency is improved. You get your quality. You ensure that you can inculcate and acculturate these teachers into your ways, into your means and into your settings. But that still means that people are going to leave. And where one experienced teacher leaves and replaced by a less experienced practitioner, we've got a knowledge gap. OK, now. Because of this, the white paper came out a couple of days ago. Again, I really do find some interesting texts to read, don't I? Uh, the, uh, the first chapter of that white paper came through and it told us that there was going to be an excellent teacher for every child. We've got these new MPQs. Okay, we've got these new scholarships to attract the most talented language graduates and this new ITT course to support more engineers to teach physics. We're going to have a new digital service that's going to recognise teaching qualifications from, open quote fingers, all over the world. And these 500,000 teacher training and development opportunities by 2024, we've got this flagship institute of teaching, don't get me started, and teacher trainers being re-accredited. Again, don't get me started. 7,000 words written in six weeks. I don't see how my provision can be judged on the basis of an essay. We're going to raise the teacher starting salaries. There's going to be retention payments for maths and science teachers in disadvantaged areas. All of this is magnificent rhetoric. But how is it going to look? This relocation premium to help teachers from around the world with visas. Great idea. Who's going to be their sponsor? Have we tried working through the administrative quagmire? Not yet. And of course, good old Ofsted are going to inspect all of our ITT provision by July 2024. Alongside the reaccreditation bid. Not supplement, not to, you know, not separate from, or not, not. Let's pause one and do the other. Let's do both, belt and braces, and then back on with the belt. And again, don't get me started, although I already have. So I think there's a real lot of things for us to be considering there. And again, what does that mean for the future of our sector? I, uh, I proposed a theory to someone earlier this week. Um, I, I, I can't really think in anything but analogy and, and stories and metaphors and, and different concepts and occasional allusions to things that I don't know enough about. But um, I considered the story of Icarus and I, I've seen this um, actually starting to manifest more. And it's unfortunate. And I don't mean that we've got lots of teachers strapping um, wax wings to their bodies and, and jumping towards the sun. OK, especially not today. I haven't seen the sun. It's been chucking it down. But what we've got are young teachers, people with not a huge amount of classroom experience, aiming for the skies 
and trying to get up into those echelons of middle and senior leadership early on in their career, perhaps for security, perhaps for ambition. But the trouble is, because the gaps are there, they're being accepted. And the trouble is, because they're being accepted, they're expected to be good at that job. Why are they expected to be good at that job? Well, because they've applied for it. Why did they apply for it? Well, because they want some financial security and they have an ambition. Fine. Are they good enough for it? I'm going to argue that anyone in their first five years really isn't, especially in the current climate. So what we're doing again is we're taking people who aren't quite ready, who have to learn on the job. I learned my senior leadership on the job, and we all know that discovery learning for novices is a bad idea. Made a number of mistakes as I learned to be a senior leader. Thankfully, I was in a supportive environment with a number of other learning senior leaders. But we've got to look at how we're pushing quality up through the sector into that engine room of middle leadership. Hats off to all middle leaders. Okay. Now, <clears throat> gosh, look at the time. We're already half an hour in to my first ever attempt at a radio show here on Teachers Talk Radio. And I'm sorry if all I'm doing is plowing you full of data and opinion. But again, let me know what you think. Get in touch, text in, and let's see where we go from here. Now, next stage, worth goes into what we're worth. No pun intended, Jack, apologies. Teachers pay is lower in real terms than it was 10 years ago. And starkly has lost competitiveness relative to the wider economy over the past decade. Now, later in the show, I'm going to be referring to a paper around teacher quality um, from Dylan William, best part of 10 years ago now. But some of the things that he cites in there are really, really interesting, almost future echoes. Uh, it's a Red Dwarf reference for anyone who, uh, like me, grew up in the mid 90s. So if we look at this medium full time real term gross pay, there's a sentence you don't say every day. We can see that these real-time average earnings against similar professionals are falling massively below. Okay, the, the teacher pay freeze last year meant that teacher pay fell sharply in real terms. Inflation got to 5%. It's going higher now. Average earnings in the UK economy and median earnings of similar professionals also fell, but by less than teaching. So all of a sudden, teaching is a poor man's game. And I don't want to go back to the days of teachers wearing their slightly frayed blazers with the patches on the arms. I wear a woolen waistcoat, actually, all, all year round in teaching. I, I'm not very good at dressing for the weather. But we don't need that slightly impoverished Mr. Chips. We need inspirational, wonderful. I'm not, I was going to make a pun on chips. What's the more sort of inspirational version of chips? A hand cooked chip, a thrice cooked chip. I don't know, a sweet potato wedge. <laughs> Being serious, I'm really sorry. But this change to teacher pay matters for that retention we were talking about. Office for Budget Responsibility forecast, average pay in the economy will rise by 3.9% this year, 3% next year, okay? And therefore, the teacher pay proposal of an overall 3.9% increase this year and 26 next is insufficient. How are we going to attract more people into a desperately impoverished profession if we're not going to pay them any money? OK, we're not competitive. We're going to inhibit improvement in recruitment and retention because we can't hold up ourselves against similar jobs and similar levels of expertise. And that's really interesting when we come to William and his teacher quality about actually how highly respected our profession should be and how we value 
variety. We value autonomy. We value different people's input. But autonomy shouldn't have to come at a price. Um, we've got the proposals on teacher pay targeted at early, early career teachers. But I'll be honest with you, having worked in school leadership for a little while, if I'm all of a sudden having to pay my teacher starting salaries £30,000 by next year, well, I'm going to be looking closely at my curriculum-led financial plan, aren't I? Because I don't really think I could afford that, especially when I've got to pay my ECT's mentor a little bit more by taking them off timetable. Things start to cost. What can we do about it? Well, there's got to be more money put into the sector earlier on. People have got to want to be funded through their training. That's where we start. Don't hit the schools. Use the DfE. Get into initial teacher training. Put the money in there. Get the bursaries back up. Make the opportunities for people to want to be part of a profession that is hugely valued, massively important. Now, as we continue to work our way through the report, we end up at this point around longer hours. Well, it stands to reason, doesn't it? If you're working more hours for less real-time money, then all of a sudden you find that you're actually probably somewhere below a minimum working wage. And really, sadly, Worth and colleagues cite that the workload is the reason for ex-teachers why they left teaching. Before the pandemic, teachers were working longer hours in term time than similar professionals. So back in 2018, 19, remember those halcyon days? Um, Full-time teachers were working 47 hours in a working week. A similar professional was working 41. I'd love some suggestions as to what a similar professional is. Again, text in if you can. We've got also the fact that more than half of teachers in 2018-19 uh, um, said they'd have preferred to work shorter hours. So, again, you know, are, are we getting it right do we need scorched earth? Do we need to, in the words of uh, Orange Juice and Edwin Collins, rip it up and start again? I'm not sure if we do, but there's certainly some things to consider here. The LFS data during the lockdown, spring 2020. Teachers are working at home. Schools are open. Schools were open. Schools never closed. Schools were open, but with limited hours. Full-time teacher hours were still at around 40 hours. Once the school closures um, started to uh, to diminish somewhat and, and there were so these little pockets of opening, then all of a sudden we're back to 46 hours a week. And that's significantly more hours on average than those full-time similar professionals. So we appear in our sector to be doing more for less money. We're underappreciated, overworked. It's a, it's a sad concoction, an imperfect storm. But there has to be hope doesn't there? There's got to be a horizon. Okay, there's got to be to, uh, to quote Ron Sexsmith, gold in them hills. And I think if we, we look closely enough at our sector, and I say our, as if I own it, the sector that I love, the area of interest for me in education, initial teacher education, initial teacher training, let's start to get things right there. Let's get people to realise that when they enter the profession, they are going to work hard but they're going to work hard and they're going to be rewarded for it. They are going to have peaks. They are going to have troughs, but they're also going to have time away. They're going to have the opportunity to develop continually as a professional. And that's so important. We're going to just come on to another aspect of the report now. And that's the really sad idea that teachers experienced high anxiety and low life satisfaction this time last year. And I'll be honest with you, so did I. 
I'm sure we all did, because there wasn't really much worth getting up for in the winter of 2020, the early months of 2021. Anxiety levels rose, teachers' anxiety levels rose in particular above those, again, of these similar professionals. And the life satisfaction took a massive dip. Again, hopefully we can do something about that. But during the pandemic, positively, teacher life satisfaction was significantly higher than those similar professionals. I wonder why that was. It would be sad to think, wouldn't it, that teachers were satisfied sitting at home and teaching from the comfort of their desk, as I did, attempting to teach from the uh, relative comfort of a spare bedroom with children walking in and out every now and then, having, you know, dropped a paw patroller on their foot, um, which I think has happened downstairs while I've been on uh, while I've been on air. Now, going to just look at the last aspect of this, because I'm aware that we've spent an awful lot of time poring over what might not be particularly enlightening data, but actually it's the stories behind the data that to me enliven it. This idea that ITT school placement capacity increased slightly last year, but mentoring capacity is going to remain under strain. And that's a really, really sad thing. Okay. If we're going to bring in these great teachers, the only way great teachers remain great teachers is if they're supported by great existing teachers. And mentorship as a, a concept, mentorship as a vocation, mentorship is a vocation. And those people in schools responsible for the development of teachers know how much they commit to it. They commit more than one period a week. They commit themselves to the development of others. 3,000 years ago, there were mentors. Okay, Telemachus had a mentor. Homer called him mentor. We get it from Homer. We go back 3,000 years. This idea of supporting other people. And if we don't have the supportive environments aligned to our ways of thinking in the initial teacher training sector, then what we have is a disconnect. So another thing that I want to pursue, not tonight, tonight's not the night, but I want to pursue how we can ensure that there's an alignment between what's going on in initial teacher education, training, professional development. OK, so that's some um, uh, to use a uh, not very good initialism but also how we can make sure that those people who've been mentoring for 20, 25 years are using the right language, are using the terminology that we understand in the sector. I think people have been using retrieval practice for donkey's years. They just probably haven't been calling it retrieval practice. People don't maybe realise that um, teacher standard five is now called adaptive teaching. OK, there's ideas around responsiveness. I think, is it Socrates? that said that there are no, no new ideas in teaching, but not everybody knows the old ideas. Uh, it might have been Euclid. I can't remember. Not that it matters. Neither of them are here to tell me off. But that's important, isn't it? So we've got to align everybody as we go through. Let's have a look at this placement capacity. Let's have a look at what it says. Before the pandemic, okay, in primary, your average number of ITT placements was roughly three per school, and in secondary, it was seven. Okay. Go down to 2021, that dropped in secondary to six and primary to two. And now we're still there. The trouble is, we know from earlier on, as we discussed, that there's more people in the sector at the moment or went into ECT last year with nowhere to go. Now, we can only solve a recruitment issue by bringing more people in, but we can only bring more people in if we've got somewhere to put them. And if we haven't got anywhere to put them, what are we going to do with them then? We're going to disenchant them, aren't we? There's nothing sadder, as I said earlier, than a teacher with QTS walking around in want of a job. 
Okay, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single person with QTS must be in want of a job to not very well quote Jane Austen. <clears throat> Add to that the impact of the early career frame rate requirements. So release of time for two years, not one. Mentor release time, two years, but one. If you're opening a new school, can you afford to employ an ECT? I'm not sure if you can. Have you got the capacity to support the ECT? I'm not sure if you have. What can we do? Well, as I've said, we need to ensure that there's more money in the sector at the start. We need to make our profession a better profession and one that people want to join. And also, we need to make sure that mentorship is a vocation and not just a, you've got a TLR, so have this trainee. Anyway, there in also is another discussion. I've talked for too long and I think it's about time we took a little bit of a break. Oh, no, we've had a text in. Thank you, caller. So Holly has texted in to tell us that we're going back to workload and well-being. Talking to colleagues today about how we've started getting some uh, unfortunate bouts of dizziness. Their response was it's standard for stress to present itself in that way. It was especially noticeable to them during tags where one teacher lost the ability to speak coherently and had to go to the doctor. I mean, that's tragic, isn't it? That's an awful, awful situation that this pressure is mounting on people through that element of accountability that isn't their own. And the pressures that the sector faces, we've got to support people. We've got to look after people. We've got to make sure that everybody already in our sector is loved and looked after and those coming into it see it as a valuable profession. What we're going to do after the break, we're going to take a short break uh, for the news and adverts. And then we're going to be looking at a couple of other things. We're going to talk about some key elements of reading. I'm going to be discussing Dylan Williams' paper on teacher quality. We're going to bow down to the totem of education literature that is Graham Nuttall's Hidden Lives of Learners. And then I'm also going to invite you to tell me whether you think it should be teacher training or teacher education. Let's go to the news if I can find it, because this is my first time. Here we go. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. 
our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, schools across 23 countries are still partially or fully closed due to COVID, affecting 405 million pupils. Some schools that have reopened have reported that some vulnerable children, especially girls, have not returned. UNICEF Executive Director Catherine Russell says children are the hidden casualties of the pandemic. In March 2020, 150 countries around the world completely shut their schools, with partial closures in a further 10. Two years later, 19 still have some of their schools closed. In a further four, the Philippines, Honduras, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu in the South Pacific at least 70% remain shut, the proportion UNICEF categorise as full closure. Ms Russell told BBC News, we are seeing children go back who were reading before, who now can't read, who were doing numbers before, who now can't do that. Some children, because their families were so impoverished, were moved into the workforce. Girls also get moved into early marriage. And that's a terrible fate. Across sub-Saharan Africa, reading, writing and math skills were lowest even before the pandemic. When schools returned in Uganda in January this year, about one in 10 pupils failed to return. In Northern Ireland, Dr Graham Galt, Director of the National Association of Head Teachers, has voiced his concerns following the release of provisional budgets for individual schools. He said, the indicative financial allocations to schools announced today make harrowing reading for all of our school leaders. With a decade of decimated budgets for schools behind us and the prospect of a further shortfall of three quarters of a billion pounds over the next three years, it is simply impossible for many of our schools to maintain basic services for our children without already enormous deficits spiralling further out of control. 
One factor that will deepen the financial crisis dramatically is that COVID-related costs, including for substitute teachers, will no longer be covered by additional funding. Schools will be expected to cover such costs themselves. This is a huge expense and will plunge some schools into an unprecedented level of crisis. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Okay, and welcome back. Now, welcome to part two of my debut show here for Teacher Talk Radio. Thank you for those of you that are getting in touch and sharing your points of view. Um, I appreciate and I'm a little uh, apologetic for the fact that we spent the first half an hour of the show just talking about statistics. And those statistics, in all honesty, I felt were really, really important. We've got to look pragmatically and with a, a proper reflective lens on the current state of our sector, the current state of initial teacher education. We've got to ensure that we're getting the right people into our sector. And once they're there, we're supporting them and we're looking after them and we're making sure that all those brilliant people that are coming in and all those brilliant people that are in their first years and second years of teaching are going to stay. That's what's got to be so important. You can only retain people that want to be retained. And if we don't give them a reason to stay, then they're going to go. And so we've really got to look at how we invest in the sector, how we ensure that initial teacher education, initial teacher training, whatever we're going to call it and debate a bit later, maybe on, is the best it can be but also that it has the opportunity to be as varied as it can be, that it has the opportunity to be contextualised, that it has the opportunity to be nuanced, that it has the opportunity to offer something unique with its own practice, build its own evidence base, champion its own ethos, deliver its own beliefs, and also allow people to make a decision aligned to their own current thinking and their own perspectives. Yes, we can have a solid base of cognitive science on which to build our pedagogical principles, but also we need an understanding of why we're doing what we're doing, why we're in the sector in the first place, because that's what's going to keep us there. It's all very well knowing the facts, but until we actually start to practice them and we start to build our own teacher professional identity and we introduce those things that we hold so dear and we manifest those in our own autonomous classroom environments, that's where we end up with teacher quality. So this brings me on nicely. That was an attempt at a segue. I'm not sure if people heard how clunky it was as the crowbar dropped from my hand and hit the desk into my focus on a research paper. We're looking at Dylan Williams' speech to the Institute of Education. Um, uh, 2014, he made this speech, and I really like this. Not because you know I, I hold sway with everything Dylan Williams has got to say, not at all. I appreciate significant amount of work that William has done in and around assessment, um, but because it just hits home. There's a way with words here that I just enjoy. And the speech is called Teacher Quality, Why It Matters and How to Get More of It. And he uses a wonderful analogy towards, uh, you know, in, in the early part of the speech, he says, in the past, we have treated schools as talent refineries. The job of schools was to identify talent and let it rise to the top. The demand for skill and talent was sufficiently modest that it did not matter that potentially able individuals were ignored the demand for talent and skill is now so great, however, that schools have to be talent incubators and even talent factories. It is not enough to identify talent in our schools anymore. We have to create it. 
And for me there, we've got some implications. How do we create that talent? Well, I don't think the creation of the talent is the job of the schools per se. I think the noticing and the fostering of the talent starts with initial teacher education. It starts with that person who for some reason has all of a sudden decided that they are right for teaching, that they've got something about them that they want to share. They were perhaps inspired by others. One of the key things I hear all the time when people apply for my course, and I love them for applying, is that ever since they were younger, they wanted to be a teacher. And it makes me uh, it sort of think of the, the opening line of Goodfellas, um, only with slightly less uh, <laughs> adult content, I suppose. I don't think teaching is quite like Goodfellas. But we do enjoy a pizza on a parents' evening, don't we? Well, we used to before they all went online. So let's go back to Dylan William. Let's go back to this wonderful speech that he made. A lot of it is politically uh, dated now. Um, and a lot of it is, is based on the research and the, the, uh, the systems that William himself was talking about. But in a really interesting section of the paper, he says that we get better teachers because, or how do we get better teachers? He asks the question and then he opens by telling us that in some countries such as Finland, Japan and Singapore, teaching is a high status occupation. Therefore, recruitment into the profession is highly selective. Now, there's been some really interesting focus on how to ensure that you identify the best people for teacher training. Um, and uh, the EDT, I believe, published some work on this a couple of years ago about how to identify teachers through a use of scenarios, um, deans for impact, and their learning by scientific design program also looks at how you can identify, address and correct misconceptions prevalent within pre-service teachers to ensure that they don't begin a career thinking that things like VAC work or that, you know, or that they can change the world, which are, I think, the two issues that I certainly found in teaching when I entered it in the mid 2000s. For countries, uh, here William goes on, for countries in this position, Finland, Japan, Singapore, the quality of teacher preparation and the quality of continuing professional development is almost irrelevant. If you can persuade the smartest people in the country to want to be teachers, you will have a great education system. Now, there's a statement. Do we agree? Well, I think largely. However, we also have to consider what makes a great teacher. And that's where we start to think about teacher quality. Can it be identified? in pre-service experience? Can it be identified in application? Can it be identified in interview? No, I don't think it can. But what can be identified is potential, drive, commitment, and a sector knowledge. And I do think that in order to enter teaching, you've got to have a belief about education. You've got to have an ethos. I don't mind what your ethos is, providing you've got one. As I said earlier, my uh, a lot of my educational thinking is founded in some of the ideas of free air, but also uh, Biesta, um, Biesta Resistance, one of my favourite puns, no one ever gets it. Um, but other things around free education as emancipation, freedom, individualisation, creating people in environments that can thrive and having an opportunity also to share what you love and what makes you tick and to give that to others. And there's a, a fantastic quote by a chap called... Um, I think it's Herbert Simon, who said that um, learning is highly individual. Learning takes place in the mind of the learner. Um, so we don't, as teachers, we can't directly determine what's going on in the mind of the learner. All we can do is influence what goes in. 
and then what how the uh, the the student reacts to that influence how the student reacts to what goes in is entirely around their own preconceived knowledge their own um, perceptions their own expectations and experiences and we have to be sympathetic to those we have to be acknowledging those and that will lead me on very nicely again did you hear the segue that will lead me on very nicely to Nuttall's magnificent hidden lives of learners um, but before we finish um, with William's speech which as I look at it now I, I do wonder I managed to print it twice I didn't think it was as long as it was um, he quotes Samuel Beckett and if you've been listening since the start of my show thank you and well done for sticking with it but I love a quotation and William finishes by saying that we need people who are drawn to the profession, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. A job that is so difficult that one's daily experience is of failure, but one where each day, to quote Samuel Beckett, one can fail better. <laughs> I'm not sure whether a Samuel Beckett, not the guy from Quantum Leap, but the uh, the playwright, I'm not sure a Samuel Beckett quotation can solve all the problems inherent in the data from the uh, NFER report that we explored in the first half. But I tell you what, it would be worth having a go, wouldn't it? Okay, welcome back properly to the second half of tonight's show. Please do text in. We've got some questions at the top. Uh, we've already covered our topic, our main topic, which is around ITT recruitment and the state we're in after COVID, the implications we have for the sector. We've just talked a little bit about teacher quality, and I do hope that in future shows I'll be able to dig down further into the mechanisms of effective professional development and also the concept of mentorship as a vocation in which we can specialise with our teacher development. Okay, but... I want to spend a few minutes now thinking about the third question that I posted at the start, which was Graham Nuttall's excellent seminal work, The Hidden Lives of Learners. If we've read it, if we understand it, if we love it, if we loathe it, if we've never read it before, I'd love to hear your opinions. For me, as I said earlier, it's the absolute totem of education literature, one that I return to time and time again, not because it's full of fantastical pedagogical concepts and magnificent realizations of retrieval strategies and um, knowledge organizers and all of these wonderful things that flash in our teaching pans on a daily basis but just that it's real and if you don't mind i am going to read you a few little bits from the piece hopefully under the guise of um sort of educational copyright publishing or whatever it's called but I'm not going to do an Andy Kaufman on you and read the entirety of Great Gatsby. You don't have to sit there for that. I just want to read you a little paragraph that I use all the time for my trainee teachers. And I would show any trainee teacher to give them a sense of reality and grounding and to understand, as William said, you've got to fail better. This is magnificent. So Nuttall says to acknowledge the extraordinary difficulties involved in teaching. He says it would be inappropriate for me to conclude this chapter without acknowledging the enormous difficulties involved in effective teaching. As I discuss later in the book, the education system as we currently experience it is not to set up to encourage effective teaching. Being sensitive to the progress, interests and culture of about 25 different individuals and creating new and genuinely worthwhile learning activities that engage the interest and culture of these different individuals in a climate where boredom is the expected state and students are on their guard against being conned into being interested 
are extraordinarily difficult tasks. They cannot be undertaken alone or without enthusiastic institutional support and rewards. And I'll just read that last line again. Enthusiastic institutional support and rewards. Does anyone hear the clanging of the NFER data bell in the distance there? Okay. And the beauty of Nuttall's book is that it's a celebration of everything that makes teaching so unique. It's a celebration of that make everything that makes teaching such a wonderful experience. But again, the reason I go back to the book is because I think it grounds us. It shows us <clears throat> that we're doing something difficult, but we're doing it because we care. He opens his book with a chapter called What Do We Know About Effective Teaching? And the opening paragraph I think is something that every ambitious teacher should read. To be an effective teacher involves a high level of commitment, commitment to children and young people, to their well-being and future lives, commitment to knowledge and the importance of being able to think independently and effectively in a democracy, commitment to a profession that is dedicated to improving society. This level of commitment requires a strong set of well thought out beliefs about teaching and learning and the way schools can foster the well-being and development of their students. And I would show every wannabe teacher, every pre-service teacher, every existing teacher who finds themselves a little jaded or finds themselves behind the curve of professional development, who finds themselves in times of trouble waiting for Mother Mary to come to them. I just want them to read that again and again and to know that they've committed themselves to a sector that welcomes them with open arms, but a sector that appreciates the, the trouble and the strife and all of those things that go with effective teaching. I'd love to hear from anybody in the text if they've ever read this book, if they have referred to it at any point, if they know anything about what Nuttall goes on to talk about. The beauty of Nuttall's work conducted in the Southern Hemisphere is that it was done over many, many years. And it looks not only at what students learn and how they learn it, but who the students are as people. And one particular area that I want to talk about within the text is how Nuttall draws our attention to those hidden lives. And he's already talking in the book written in the early 2000s about working and long term memory. These aren't new concepts. These aren't new things that all of a sudden have burst onto the educational landscape with a beautifully designed icon. OK, these are things that people have been considering for years. So if they've been considered for years, I don't think there's any shame in going back to look at earlier people who considered them. Rosenshine's principles. OK, you know, it's almost like if you've got a bingo card, you might as well tick that. He wrote those, I think, published them in American Educator in 2012. The UNESCO paper, the Educational Practice Series, is 2010. Um, but his teaching functions paper is 1986. And Rosenshine himself says in that teaching functions paper that it would be a mistake to assume that all of these practices are going to work in all areas all of the time. That's a, a slight paraphrase, and I hope Rosenshine wouldn't mind me saying it. But we can't just rely on the fact that all of a sudden education research is now acknowledged as a, an, an aspect of our sector. It's been going on for years. And what we have to do is look back through those years, through the annals of research, and just determine those consistent themes. 
That's how we avoid those flashing, you know, those flashes in our pedagogical pan. So one really important chapter in Nuttall's work is chapter four, where he talks about life in classrooms, the contexts within which learning takes place. Now, I said in the first half of the show, didn't I? And I think I did them a disservice and I'm sorry. Um, that ECTs, many of them, are having to learn their craft on the job because of so much time spent teaching behind a screen and so many of them struggling to break out from the shackles of the black and yellow tape of two-metre distance and not understanding the, the ability to, to use your body language and your non-verbals and your proximals in order to ensure that you manage your classroom. And I don't mean to do a disservice to anybody there because there's some fantastic practitioners who are learning as they go, but that's the issue, learning as they go. And we have to acknowledge that, okay? We have to help them. So, not all says that learning within the classroom takes place within more than one context and more than one world. And again, when I'm working with my trainee teachers right at the outset of their programme, as we induct them into the ways of education and we give them a realistic understanding of what they're letting themselves in for, I want them to have an opinion. I want them to have a creed, an ethos, a belief system around why they're entering education, what they're in it for. And he talks about three worlds. He talks about the public world that the teacher sees and the teacher manages. He talks about the semi-private world of ongoing peer relationships. And then he talks about the private world of the child's own mind. But ultimately that mind there is where children's knowledge and beliefs change and grow, where self-beliefs and attitudes have their effects and where individual thinking and learning takes place. And to go back to that Herbert Simon quote, that is where the learning is taking place. And yet we as a teacher are not going into that world. The only world that we can fully control, fully see and fully manage, the observable world is the public world. Okay, where the teacher instructs the students and the students do hopefully or largely as bid. And that world structured as Nuttall says by the learning activities and routines that the teacher themselves designs and manages. Let's go back to our discussion around the sector. And is it training or is it education? Is it ITE? Is it ITT? Is it RESPECT? Find out what it means to me. Is it DISCO? If it's ITE, then what we're acknowledging for me is the fact that actually there's only so much that a programme can teach. There's only so much that a training or education curriculum can deliver. And there's so much of it that then starts to be manifested in the different individuals that are involved within it. And as I said earlier on as well, those individuals across the sector are those that are responsible for developing every, each other. The trainee has a training provider. The trainee has a mentor. They have an induction tutor. It's unlikely that all four of those, trainee, induction tutor, mentor and provider, have an aligned ethos, have an aligned belief in the purpose of education. But what they can have is a shared language in that public world of the classroom. They can avoid what I referred to earlier as that Tower of Babel, that hic disonant ubique. Okay? We do not want people abandoning hope as they enter the classroom hell. We want people developing themselves as individual practitioners with highly crafted, informed, professional identities built on structured reflection, sensible feedback, and looking through a subject lens. And again, these are things that I'd love to be able to touch on in future shows and with future ideas. So, Nuttall, 
The Hidden Lives of Learners. If you haven't got it, get it. If you've never read it, read it. The work is fantastic. The ideas are great. And some of the things that he begins to refer to around how student knowledge actually comes through peers. Um, students shape their own concepts through their interactions with their peers. And he also drills down into how much, uh, sorry, I just used the phrase to drill down, I'm sorry. Um, he asks us to look at how we as a teacher can become more involved in the peer culture of that classroom environment. If we can only control the public world of the classroom, then we have to understand our role within it. And I think, again, something for all of us there. So let's go back to our questions at the start of the show. And I'd love and invite you to text in with your ideas. We've talked about Nuttall. We've talked about teacher quality. We've talked about some of the implications for the sector. So now what I'd like to move on to is the sector itself. And in a few moments time, we're going to be asking the question, should it be ITT? Should it be ITE? Or should it indeed be something else? Okay, so please text in with your points of view. I will outline what I believe to be my opinion. Um, for me, it's education, it's not training. Um, there are aspects of the process that are indeed training based, but I think ultimately we are offering people an education because there's a combination of theory and there's a combination of practice and there's manifestation of generic teacher standards in individual, con you know, individual contexts and with nuanced application and the opportunity to observe, discuss, develop. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are. As we move through, we start to consider, I think, a little bit about our own roots into teaching and why it is that we went. So for me, it was PGCE back in 2006, I think, 2007. And I took the PGCE route because I felt at the time it was an academic route that I wanted to pursue. Looking back, I think I might have preferred the school-centred route. I might have preferred to have been on the job slightly more four days a week and in doing so underpinning my practice and my craft with the theory but also giving me an opportunity to explore that theory more in practice so I began to truly understand it and I began to think about it in a, a more informed and I think a more reflective way so please do text in let me know your points of view and if you have one about whether or not we're calling it initial teacher training or if we're calling it initial teacher education. While we do that, and if uh, we consider whether or not anybody is going to have an opinion this evening. Oh, we have something. Ah, so Leanne has texted in. Thank you, Leanne. And she's told us here that I did a primary PGCE. Looking back now, I feel a lot of subjects were left out of my training. Leanne, that's a really interesting thread. And thank you for starting that one off for us. OK, I was starting to get a little worried there that maybe no one had any opinions today. So just try and build on that for me, Leanne, a little bit, if you don't mind, in this little text conversation. Subjects were left out of your training. Um, tell me a little bit about what you mean there. I'm going to come to Holly who's texting and thinks it should be called ITE. Uh, I felt the pressure from no one else other than myself that I've done the training, so I should know what I'm doing. So I've been worried to ask questions I needed answers to. What a very honest and a very open response. And I think as well, I agree with you. And education is an ongoing developmental process. Training implies that it has a, a finite point. And we don't call it 
continued professional training, do we? It's not called CPT. It's called CPD, development. For me, development and education go together. Leanne's back in touch. I just remember having day-long phonics lessons. Gosh, Leanne. Now, as an English teacher in a secondary school, I remember in my PGCE, I even had to go and look up for myself what a uh, subordinate clause was. That's how uh, my 90s comprehensive education enabled me to teach my subject well or not. Um, I've learned a little bit about phonics over the years. But how then, Leanne, has that uh, impacted on your practice, do you think? One of your heads once told you you can't teach people to teach in a year. Well, of course you can't. And I'm absolutely with what your head said there. I do think that if we call it an education as opposed to a training program, we acknowledge that it is going to be a continual curve. We know all of the data and all of the research indicates to the exponential development and skill growth of teachers in their early stages. But that doesn't stop. It continues. The only time it will stop is if we as a professional within our identities allow it to stagnate. We allow habits to form. Um, I'm going to keep working on, hopefully, I'd love to invite um, the wonderful Mike Hobbis onto the show uh, at a later date to talk about habit formation and stagnation in teacher development. Um, absolutely an ongoing one. Thank you, Leanne. How can we label trainee teachers as outstanding when they've only taught for less than a year? Oh, please don't get me started. I can't stand the use of the words good and outstanding in teacher training or teacher education. Okay, I look on effective or not effective in different areas, sometimes quite discrete areas. You can't get to Christmas and grade a trainee against teacher standards summatively. We're not even meant to anymore. And so, so damaging, isn't it, to, to motivation, both intrinsic and extrinsic. If your trainee reaches Christmas and are told that they're not there yet, well, I think, well, will I ever get there? And then, uh, Leanne, again, what a great story. A trainee who was shocked to learn she'd only been, she'd be given ones in her first teacher standards assessment she'd only taught for three months yeah how can we rate somebody as an outstanding or highly effective practitioner when they are so un not unskilled but so limited in their experience within their domain to me it, it, it just doesn't make sense and this is where i think the shift towards a more formative approach of teacher development across flight you know progress models and, and understanding the relative ability levels, skill levels, range of declarative and procedural knowledge levels of our trainee teachers. And we call them trainees, don't we? Maybe we should call them learners. If we're going to call it an initial teacher education, are they a trainee or are they a learner? Are they a pre-service teacher? Are they an, uh, an, an initial phase teacher and then an early career teacher? And we avoid the use of the word trainee altogether. Let me know what you think. Is the term trainee pejorative in this sense? Are we actually assuming that that represents this finite completion of a course that actually is an ongoing developmental and vocational element? Thank you, Leanne, for, uh, for prompting a really, really interesting discussion there. Um, anyone else who wants to text in and let us know your experiences of your training or your teacher education, what would you rather call it? Would you rather be referred to as a learner or a trainee? I touched on earlier uh, the Deans for Impact programme about learning by scientific design. And if you've never had an opportunity to read into that, I suggest you do. It's a very simple search on a, uh, an internet search engine of your choice. Um, when given a choice of internet search engine, I'm, I'm tempted sometimes to go for the underdog. So why not try binging it instead of Googling it? Um, but when you read into the report, you will see that the LBSD 
uh, learning by scientific design um, report looks at actually some pre-service teachers have these misconceptions around the basic principles of cognition and understanding. <laughs> Leanne wouldn't have minded a few more lessons on how to teach PE, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> do you know what, um, Leanne, it's a really, really lovely comment to make. And I, um, I have the privilege and the pleasure of working with trainee PE teachers. And the first thing I try and do at the start of any training year, or indeed at any training session that I'm delivering to our whole cohort, is to just acknowledge that I'm not an expert in any of their domains. I'm barely an expert in English. Um, uh, as teaching and so what I'm telling them has to be viewed through their own domain lens I can present to them on aspects relation to the ITT core content framework and then augment it significantly beyond its rather narrow research base <clears throat> sorry didn't mean to go there um, and what I can do is then offer them my opinion and my experience but my experience is is entirely founded within English teaching so I can't stand in front of a geographer and tell them that this is how adaptive teaching manifests in their domain because their pedagogies are so different. I don't do field work as an English teacher. I can't stand in front of a business studies teacher and tell them that this is how um, we, uh, you know, this is how retrieval practice, oh, retrieval practice, everybody loves it. Um, this is how it, it, it looks for you because I'm not an expert in that domain. So that's where using expertise is really important. And every time I watch a PE teacher, especially if they're good, uh, effective, sorry, it's like watching a master chess player. It's a chess grandmaster. The PE teacher that can start by setting up the small groups and then can add the small groups together to create a slightly larger group and then can take those two larger groups and add them together to create an inclusive team. And then that team plays the other team that also happen to be part of the same class. But the maths has been done, the ergonomics and the layout has been done. Um, our Borough PE advisor is that teacher. Amazing. Oh, and I'm so pleased to hear that because it is. It's like watching poetry and harmony and chess and, and all of these wonderfully get the, these things that have not only lo logic to them, but also beauty. And I do I do mean that. I do think that a really well structured lesson that incorporates a range of different activities and adapts and responds to these different um, circumstances is only something that could be learned through continual development and continual education, either through our own self drive and worth or through access to appropriate materials and critically engaged research. We have to be critical. She even gets the kids to set up the group, <laughs> brave lady. She is indeed, providing she tells them exactly where that equipment needs to go and um, at what point it is best obtained by the PE teacher who then needs to lay it out again. That's a simple one, isn't it? I suppose, you know, I've tried many times in my English classroom to be a bit more sort of forward thinking with my distribution of glue sticks, but I certainly lack the, uh, the prowess, the tactical and strategic prowess of an expert PE teacher. Thank you, Leanne, for engaging in what's been a really, really interesting conversation there. If anyone else would love to throw in some ideas around initial teacher training versus initial teacher education and whether or not your route into the sector was the one that you wish you'd chosen or you go back and do it differently next time. For us and our uh, skit cohort, the important thing is a constant acknowledgement of the fact that um, I think it's a Yogi Berra quote, um, quote number 406, for those of you keeping a tally, is that um, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. 
And um, there's a, a fantastic quotation as well by Paolo Freire um, in not Pedagogy of the Oppressed, but um, A Pedagogy of Freedom, I think it's the, the, the later book. And he says that without critical thinking, research is merely blah, 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 and um, action is mere activism. And he argues how we can and must combine the two and acknowledge the restrictions of one on the page and acknowledge the various and multifarious manifestations of the other in practice and how unless we're contextually sympathetic and we allow those um, in mentoring and supporting roles to help these guys develop appropriately and to understand um, how best to manifest a generic pedagogical learn that or learn how to statement within their specific domain, we're only then going to begin to create those that expertise and that effectiveness, that efficiency that we need um, in order to secure the future of our sector, a future that um, if we were listening earlier on in the show, we've acknowledged is perhaps in a little bit of trouble at the moment. Okay, now, um, we're entering the final five minutes of uh, our show this evening, and um, I'd really love to thank those of you who've taken the time to not only tune in, um, which has been a real pleasure, and I've really enjoyed that people have taken the time to tune in and listen to what's been going on, but also those of you, uh, Leanne and Holly in particular, who've contributed to the discussion and have allowed us to explore and pull at a few key threads um, I'm going to start moving towards a conclusion now, which for those of you still left on uh, online is probably a great thing and you're probably exceptionally happy about that. But um, it's been an absolute pleasure this evening talking to everybody. Future topics for consideration. Um, I'd love to explore further um, ideas of mentorship as a vocation and not just an adjunct on somebody's performance management review. Uh, I'd love to consider mechanisms around effective professional development and um, education within the initial teacher sector. I'd like to look at the threat to and hopefully the solutions for the more university-based routes into initial teacher training. I'm also am very interested in the development of shared languages across the sector to ensure that those involved in the development of um, pre-service and induction service teachers understand the language being used and can enact it appropriately to avoid what I've referred to a couple of times now as this Tower of Babel, where the trainee is overloaded by a wealth of feedback, all designed with the best intentions, but ultimately leading to confusion. Okay, so um, Leanne, best shows, best quotes said by kids, a sh an idea for a show. Do you know what, Leanne? I'm on that and I love that. And I think that's an absolutely great idea. Why don't we try and conclude this evening, Leanne, with your best quote that you've ever heard said by a student in your classroom and anyone else out there listening as well. Please do. Let's get some fuel on the fire for this particular show later down the line. <laughs> what is the best thing that you've ever heard said to you by a student? Throw those into the chat for me or not the chat. I don't mean that, do I? I mean text in. That's me uh, coming from a, uh, a Teams and Zoom background. Um, thank you to those of you that are saying that you've liked the show. I'm really pleased. Um, not sure about a quote, but never forget vegetables being spelt veggie balls. <laughs> I love it. I had a, um, a colleague in a meeting relatively recently um, who referred to um, exasperating something instead of exacerbating it. Um, and actually, I felt the former, although slightly Freudian in its slip, was a far more appropriate word. Um, so uh, I think, again, some of the things that we say, 
often can uh, <laughs> lead us down very, very different lines. Okay, everybody. Um, let's start to just wind us up. I'm going to go back to the very top of the show and just outline again and refer back to those learning objectives for this evening. We started by thinking about the data around ITT recruitment and the state we're in after COVID. We've looked at some implications for the sector. I'm hoping that we can rise through these difficult times and that certainly in, in relation to real term wages, that there's going to be no issues there for people wanting to get involved in teaching. I'm not sure if we've solved the ITT or ITE debate, but I certainly think we've got more people on the side of education than training. We've had a lovely little exploration through Nuttall's work, The Hidden Lives of Learners, and if you haven't got it, go and get it. And we talked a little bit, and I'd love to teach a lot more about teacher quality and how we ensure that we're bringing the very best people into our sector. I'm going to finish with Leanne again. Um, it says, Miss Lax, my new sister is called Rivka. Mum comes in to say, no, her name is Debbie. <laughs> well, do you know what? Maybe uh, that child felt that Rivka was a far better name than Debbie and they didn't really want to be uh, <laughs> to be saddled with them as a sister going forward. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. I'm hoping that I'll be able to manage the, techni uh, the technology required to do the outro at the appropriate time. Um, I look forward to joining you again this time next week. Um, where we will be discussing some new aspects in relation to professional development, teacher education, and above all, how great it is to do the job we do. Thank you very much, everybody, and good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.